bless the reading of this word. Good morning. I'm sorry, Bill, I had to. How many times, uh, Bill had pointed out, how many times do we need to say good morning in a particular morning? Well, this is the first time I'm greeting you, so uh, good morning. I apologize, Bill. I'll, I'll make up for it later. I'll pay penance. <laughs> I want to tell you that I think that Jesus is the most transfixing figure in history. I, I don't know of anyone that's ever existed that should be more captivating than Jesus. And as I I think about him, I I can't help but imagine what it would have been like to be in his physical presence, to see his face. Of course, scripture tells us that there, there was nothing about him, his physical being, that would draw people to him. There was certainly a quality about his existence that drew people towards him, but not not about his face, not about his body, not about uh, maybe the career background that he came from. It was him. The person of Jesus was magnetic. People had to come and see him. The, the ways in which he interacted with people, the ways in which he loved people, the, the things he knew about you, and the way that he served, those were things that drew people to him magnetically. Throughout history, Christians have had different iconography that we've used to show who Jesus is and to help us better understand him and maybe help us fix on uh, specific points in his life that help us to maybe model ourselves after him a little better. And I've got this picture up here. You may look at it and you think, that doesn't look like Jesus to me. To the third century Christians... This was the image of Jesus that was indelible. This is, uh, this is the good shepherd image from the catacombs, the Calixtus catacombs in Rome. It's one of the earliest known Christian graveyards, like a, a, a catacomb, a cemetery that was built, first of all, for putting the bodies of dead Christians in, but more importantly, it was also where they went to worship. They'd be together, and the catacomb was actually, now, if you've ever been to college, you may have felt this way, Uh, catacomb is the same word that would be used for dormitories, uh, a place where a group of people would dwell together, live together, and there were times where, uh, you know, I shared a dorm room with people, and I felt like I was living with the dead. Uh, I had one particular roommate that, his name was Randy, uh, and Randy was the hardest person in the world to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, we, you may not know this, I was a cheerleader for one semester. Uh, I tell people I got paid to throw girls. That was, that was my job. Um, I got a little bit of money, and I'd get up at like five o'clock in the morning to go and practice with the cheerleaders. It probably wasn't five o'clock, but it felt like it. We'd go and we'd, uh, we'd do the stunting routines. Well, Randy was also one of the male cheerleaders, and I was responsible for getting Randy out of bed, and it was the most difficult job I have ever had. If you've had children, you know it can be difficult to get them up and out of bed on a, a, you know, any morning of the week, but especially on Sunday morning. We were talking about this just a few minutes ago. Getting Randy out of bed was far more difficult than waking my own children on a Sunday morning. I'm getting on a tangent here. I need to get back on track. Um, The catacombs were seen as a place where they would gather in this dormitory, both with those who had fallen asleep and those who were awake, 
fully alert, alive, and ready to worship Jesus. And they filled these catacombs with these different pieces of art, and there were symbols. Uh, we have the, the fish, uh, the ichthus, that represents Jesus and Christianity, and people would put those fish up, and that was a symbol to them that, hey, these are my people. For the third century Christians, this was the image of Jesus. And there's a few things I want to draw your attention to. The first is that he is the good shepherd. He's literally got a sheep on his shoulders. He's carrying it where it needs to go. This is a sign of concern and care for the flock. In his hand, he's got this, this pot. Uh, and I had to go and look, look up why he was carrying a pot. This is him bringing water for refreshment to the people. Uh, it's, it's Jesus being uh, the, the living stream and bringing water to those who need it. And there's all sorts of pieces to this image. There's a little sheep in the background, and it's, it's a beautiful picture, especially for people who are awaiting the return of the good shepherd in a deep, dark cave. It informed who they were as people, to have this image of Jesus to fix their eyes on. This is who we follow. This is who we model our lives after. This is who we want to be. And so as we consider Jesus in the New Testament, we have to ask, what are the images of Jesus that are indelible, that stick in our minds, that inform the way that we as his disciples live our lives? And last week, Kyle did a fantastic job of talking about the presence of Jesus in the lives of people. And he, he drew on the story of the woman at the well and Jesus' presence with her that he, he could have very easily ignored her, but instead he engaged her. And he, he knew her story intimately and spoke to her experience in life in ways that were meaningful to her. And towards the end of his lesson, he brought up this point. He said that we should lead with compassion. And... and he said we do that to lead people to Jesus. And he used kind of a, a word play here. Lead with compassion. Start off with compassion. Begin. Start from the perspective of compassion. And you will lead people to Jesus. And that's what my entire sermon this morning is. So I, Kyle's in trouble because he preached my sermon in one sentence last week. But that's okay. Um, I want to tell you this morning that if you have an image that you leave this morning of Jesus in your head, I want it to be the image of compassion. Um, lead with compassion. This, this could be a mantra, I think, for most of us. If we made this the way that we approached life in general, I think we'd probably be much more effective as Christians. And so I want to tell you the story that I, I think exemplifies the compassion of Jesus in ways that we could really use more of in our lives. John 8, verse 2 through 5, uh, says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Jesus is here in Jerusalem in the middle of the Feast of Booths. So everyone is celebrating. It's a big uh, hullabaloo. It's, it's one of the most important festivals in the history of the Israelite people. And Jesus had debated whether or not he was going to go, and he shows up. He told people, I, I'm not going to go down to the festival. And then he shows up anyway, and he kind of does it on the stealthy down low, but then he starts teaching, and he has these confrontations with the Pharisees, and he's just had a confrontation. Everyone goes back to their homes, and then early in the morning, he came again to the temple. 
all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. All the people came to him. There is a crowd. I want you to be aware of that. Sometimes I think we gloss over this when we read this particular story. This is a highly public moment. The middle of a gigantic festival that people have traveled across the country to be a part of. The whole crowd is there at the temple, the center place of the entire religious system. And they're there to hear Jesus speak. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? The scribes and the Pharisees, as, as Wayne actually pointed out in class this morning, they knew the law backwards and forwards, inside and out. They knew what it literally said, and they knew the thousand different ways people had interpreted it over the course of history. And they knew all the arguments that could be made for any interpretation of any one of these laws— And they had found something that they really thought they could trap Jesus with here. We're going to bring this woman in, and the only option he has is for her to be publicly executed for the crime that she has committed because the law commands it. If he doesn't condemn her, then he's wrong. But if he does, it's going to be a spectacle. This is a particularly difficult passage for most of us if we read it with our eyes wide open. See, the, uh, the Pharisees, in their knowledge of the law, had built themselves up to such a point in society that they were essential. They had power. They had authority. They had wealth that was derived from their power and authority. They were significant because of the position that they held and the claims that they had made for themselves. And here, as they see their their power and their authority slipping out of their hands because of this man, Jesus, they make a final grasp to hold on to what they have. And they throw this woman down as a public spectacle in front of Jesus and demand a verdict. I skipped, sorry. They have in their mind the way that things should be. This is what we believe should happen. We've told you, Moses demands that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things in this world that I have a pretty pretty strong feeling about, things that I think need to happen in a particular way, things that I've been convicted about, this is the way it's supposed to be. And if it's any other way, it's wrong. And as a result, uh, if you disagree with me, you are wrong. 
you are wrong. And there have been times in my life where I've taken that stance to such an extent that I've cut off relationships. I'm not proud of that. That's, that's just confession time. There have been times where I've cut, cut people out of my life because I disagree with the way that they have, have done something, the way that they've lived, the choices that they've made. And I've severed the relationship entirely, completely. I'm not proud of it. And I did it out of a sense of self-righteousness, out of a sense that my morality was more important than my ability to love this person. And in our scripture reading this morning, we're told pretty clearly that there is a better way. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul does this really good job of talking about spiritual gifts, and there's different types of spiritual gifts. There's uh, these, these miraculous gifts where people would lay on hands and literally heal the physical body of another human being. There were other people that could speak in, in languages that they had no knowledge of prior to the moment that they were uttering these words. There were people that could interpret those languages for the benefit of the whole body. There were people who had the ability to provide prophecy for God's people. There were people that, that had the gift of teaching. There were people with all these miraculous gifts that were invested in them by the Holy Spirit. And some people saw these gifts as an opportunity for self-elevation. Sometimes in the church, when we have a position, or we're particularly gifted in a certain way, we might take advantage of those giftings for self-elevation. The Pharisees had the gift of a tremendous education in the law. And they saw that as an opportunity to take advantage and lift themselves up. Within the church, some people were doing the same thing. And Paul says, you know what? There, there are people who have advantages in life that will use those advantages for self-edification, for personal growth, for personal gain. And Paul says, you know, don't, don't desire the lesser gifts. And he doesn't necessarily go out of his way to specifically say which ones are the lesser gifts, but the clear message is, if it doesn't benefit the body, but it benefits the individual, it's a lesser gift. If someone is elevated by their gift, but not blessing the body of Christ, it's a lesser gift. If your knowledge of the law elevates you but tears other down, others down, I think it's a lesser gift. And there's a correlation here, I think, uh, because what ends up happening is that Paul says, look, there are a lot of things that might build you up. Paul is constantly talking about, there are a lot of things I've done in my life that could give me status, but they're worthless. They mean Nothing. He says, look, if you've got these gifts, it's all well and good, but I will show you still a more excellent way. If you're a good teacher, that's fantastic. 
If you have the gift of prophecy, that's outstanding. If you can heal people with your own two hands by the power of God and the Spirit living in you, that's wonderful. But you know what's even better? Let me tell you what's better. Mike read that for us this morning. We're going to read it again in just a few minutes. But it's clear that Paul says there is a priority in our life. There are good things, and then there's the best thing. And so I want to tell you the rest of the story that happens with this woman. They bring her to Jesus. They throw her down at his feet, and it says that he's sitting. And as they level the charges at her, Jesus is writing in the sand. He takes his hand, and he does something in the sand, Most of the time we get so caught up in the fact, what's he writing? What could he possibly be writing down there? And there's all sorts of different speculations about what it could be. Uh, There's drawing back to uh, Old Testament moments where, you know, writing happens and the hand of God appears and all this. And, you know, the stone tablets, you know, I'm the one that wrote the law, you know, all of this. All of that's well and good. But as they're leveling charges at her, Jesus bends down, he writes in the sand, and he waits for them to stop. And when the quiet has happened long enough, he stands up and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he sits back down and he begins to doodle again. And there's an uncomfortable silence. And John tells us one by one, starting with the oldest men and working their way down to the youngest, they all went back to their homes. And once they're all gone, Jesus asks the woman, where are your accusers? Is, is there no one who accuses you? She replies, none, Lord. And his statement is, then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. The Pharisees are right. The law, depending on how you want to interpret law, demands her death for her sin. I want to be really clear. The Pharisees are right. But they're also wrong. In their haste to bring this woman before Jesus, they aren't considering the greater things. It's coincidental, but fantastic. Maybe not coincidental. Maybe, it's, maybe it is uh, God's providence. This morning, Wayne talked about these two different ideas of the law, the great laws and the lesser laws. There are the great laws of the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus gives us the two greatest laws on which all the other laws depend. 
Committing adultery and the punishment for committing adultery are, in fact, laws in the Old Testament. They are prescribed. This is what you do when this thing happens. But loving your neighbor as yourself, that is also a law in the Old Testament. And, and we are called to keep the law. But the law that we're called to keep is a law that reflects the God who wrote the law. And I want to be completely clear with you this morning. If we as Christians believe that Jesus is God, then the way that Jesus enforces law, the way that he interprets law, the way that he presents his interpretation of law, must in fact be the way that we handle the law. We can't possibly grow into the image of Christ if we think that his handling of the law is wrong. In fact, I don't know why you would want to grow into the image of Christ if you think that he's handling the law in the wrong way. That would be sin, right? Jesus tells her, I, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And instead of giving her the punishment that the law says she deserves, he gives her the love that the law commands of him. And I want you to hear that again. She deserves a punishment, but he is commanded an action. We all deserve a punishment of some kind. In Jesus' moment with these men, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, there is this sudden realization, oh, there are a lot of things that I'm guilty of. There are a lot of punishments I deserve that I have not received up to this point. And if, in fact, I really want to hold to the law in the way that I say I want to hold to the law, am I convicting myself in my conviction of this woman here? We've all committed sin. According to the law, we all deserve death. The wages of sin are death. And yet by some miraculous turn of events, not just miraculous, in fact, the way that the world has ordered, the opposite of miraculous, God's perfect design from the very beginning, the order of creation is your salvation. The thing that God has worked towards through history is your salvation. It is love for you in spite of the punishment that you deserve. And in the image of this woman laid before a crowd of witnesses in, in the most public, disgraceful way possible, the image of Christ is compassion. I know what you deserve but the command is that I love you. The command is that I love you. And Jesus doesn't tell her what you've done isn't sin. What you've done isn't wrong. What you've done is perfectly acceptable to me. Instead, he says, I don't condemn you. 
Go and sin no more. He acknowledges what she's done is sin. But he does it in a gracious, loving, compassionate way. We need to handle our relationships in the way that Jesus handles relationships. We've had about 2,000 years now as Christians, uh, not 2,000 years, a pretty substantial part of the last 2,000 years where we have been in a pretty prime position within society to be able to tell people what is sin and what is not sin. Our voice has been heard pretty clearly. Most people can tell you what the Christian moral ethic looks like. It's not a particularly controversial thing. When we encounter most people and they want to know what we believe, most of them don't want to know what we believe is sin and what is not sin. I I, want to be clear. There are definitely issues that people want to know our, our specific stance on. But for the most part, the world is pretty well informed about what we believe is sin and what we don't believe is sin. I'm not telling us this morning to become soft on sin, to back away from it and call sin good. Jesus doesn't do that. But the woman caught in adultery knows what she's done. She's heard the moral ethic of the Pharisees. It is ingrained in her society. Sometimes our approach to people is to lead with condemnation. The way that you live your life is sinful, and you need to repent and turn around. Most people know we believe that part. What most people don't know is that Christians also believe in compassion. And it's unfortunate that we've reached a point in our society where that's the case. You may not believe me when I say that, but I interact with enough people on a daily basis who find out for the first time that I'm a Christian, and they really wonder about whether or not I could possibly love them in the state of life in which they live. I think that speaks volumes about how we have reversed the priority that Jesus shows in this story. We are supposed to lead with compassion Do people know that we love them? Yesterday, uh, I got to spend uh, most of the day, actually, with Joyce and John at uh, the Unity Project. It's a little thing that happened in Turner that was between the Christian church, the disciples of Christ, and the churches of Christ. And we got to talk about our, our motivation as the restoration movement, a group of Christians that wanted to restore Christianity to a uniformed, not uniformed, actually, the opposite of uniformed, to a unified state that we recognized that if you believe in Jesus, that that's the core of our faith. And from there, we can work out our differences. But that's the core. And we started the morning off by singing a song, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. I've never heard a church sing, They Will Know That We Are Christians By Our Condemnation of Their Sin. Because you don't find that in Scripture. That idea, that concept isn't found in Scripture. The idea that's found in Scripture is that they will know we are Christians when we model the love of Christ. And so this morning, I want to remind you of those words from Paul. 
this is the wedding passage that unfortunately has become the wedding passage and and it's not about weddings. I mean, you should love your spouse with the kind of love that Paul describes in the passage we're about to read, but you should love everyone with this kind of love. This is greater than the Christian moral ethic. This is what Paul is saying. Your teaching may be sound. Your understanding and vision of God's intent for his church may be big and bold and beautiful and right on point. But if it lacks these things, it's nothing. And so this morning as a church, I'm calling us to listen to the words of Paul and understand that what he is calling us to is Christianity that places compassion for humanity above condemnation of sin. It doesn't mean that one doesn't happen and the other does, but it means that there's an order and a priority to these things. So listen to these words from Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give up all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I don't have a slide for the next verses because I want you to get your Bibles out and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. This is what we are called to, and I want you to read it for yourself. I'll read it out loud. I'm going to read it in a different version. I apologize. But... I want us as Christians to internalize this message that Paul has given us, that God has given us through Paul. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. 
The things we know may benefit us in this world here and now. The things that we can prophesy about may have some benefit for us today. But in eternity, what's going to matter most is the love of Christ that dwelled within us that we shared with others. And if our first reaction to people who have been caught in sin is judgment and condemnation, they will not hear the love of Christ in our voice. If we jump and pounce on the opportunity to tear them down, we will forever fail to capture their eyes so that they can see the image of Christ in us. This morning, if you are someone who desires the love of Christ, and maybe the the message you've heard all along is that Jesus came to condemn the world, we want to affirm John 3.16, God loved the world and gave his son so that you might have eternal life. Because he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Christ didn't come to condemn you, he came to save you. And if you are looking for salvation this morning, we believe that happens in the waters of baptism. We have a baptistry back here, and you can participate in the death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. Raised to new life, and all the things that might have been convicting for you are washed away in that baptism. And you participate in the life of Jesus. And he takes up residence within you through his spirit. He is abiding with you and with the rest of his people. And we would commit ourselves as your brothers and sisters in Christ to loving you well. To bearing with you. To being patient and kind alongside you. And this morning, if maybe you are feeling convicted about something you've done in your life and you're feeling as though you don't know what comes next, you feel lost, you feel condemned, you don't feel the love of Christ in your life, we want to alleviate that as well. And we we invite you, if you would like, you can come forward, you can talk to someone right here on the front pew, or you can turn to the person next to you in the pew and ask them more about this love of Christ can guarantee you that those who have experienced it would love to share it with you. We offer you those opportunities as we stand and we sing.